Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Birthday. Happy birthday, dear Eric. Hey. Happy birthday to Happy you. Birthday to you. Yeah, you're the singer. Why? Why do you not even leave that? Uh, anyway, uh, Eric Wren. Happy birthday, founder of the show. Yeah. Uh, he's turned 39 years old today. Is uh, what I was fed. Uh, Once again. Wise. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. Sounds right. Looking great for 39 with the family mm -hmm. and everything. Uh, I know uh, the family unfortunately suffered some losses over the last few years, especially uh, last year. But uh, Eric is uh, rolling along with uh, his uh, you know, wife and uh, her kids and everybody else and uh, doing great doing jobs in life. Yep. Down here in Florida, riding around in new boats and condos. The guy's living big time, so he's, he's doing great. Yep, that's that's what happens when you you know host this show. When you retire from the show, you just go straight <laughs> upward from there. Uh, that's apparently, right. we didn't get that memo in time, so we're still doing it here. Uh, after he left that's in season four, uh, now we are together here on season thirteen, still doing it. Oh, you know what? I guess that's what we should do right now: is do the show because it's season thirteen. Whoa, thirteen. There you go. You even got it right in the camera. Nice job. Week seven. I uh, noticed the camera is uh, part of the discussion this week of In the Huddle. Indeed. Okay, so let's explain the bottom line. Um, we're going to have a number of clips, or a number of clips coming up here in crunch time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you knew it before I even said it. We didn't even talk about this off the air, folks. Yeah, it's like... Okay, going back, back to pass. Deep downfield, and I have no idea what's going on right now except for the announcer telling me because the camera is still in the quarterback. Or... The quarterback runs to the left, goes 19 yards, and it's still in the backfield with the camera. Oh, my. That was a Montclair moment. I hate to tell our, our friends of Montclair. In fact, I have not put their shirt back up for a reason, I think. We'll get it back up there, guys. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, so please. Okay, half the battle is getting these uh, web streams up. Follow the ball. Yep. <laughs> The other half of the battle is leaving the web streams up after the games are done. Hey, Trine, looking at you, kids. Uh, but the third part of the battle ultimately is making sure you have a camera operator that understands the sport of football and that the camera needs to move with the football. That that thing that you know the objective Follow of the whole the game. Ball. Got it. Yep. Yep. Especially when it's going toward the goal line, which is the other part of the objective. Uh, make sure that you like go in with Scoring it. Scoring points generally yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And and, and making sure it's on the camera is especially good. So, yep, there, there's what we got. Uh, here's what else we've got. Uh, actually, I'll let you tell folks. We've got two guests in one interview again. Uh, we had so much fun doing it uh, last time as a uh, four screen, uh, the way we did it. We uh, did it again. So, tell folks who we got coming up here from Grove City. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, for, whoops. Looks like I'm wearing this is a D3 show. I'm wearing a D1 
Kansas, uh, basketball yada, yada, yada. We got it. We, we, we it. just we beat it. Kansas. I had to give my Trojans, you know, the proper, you know, respect. But, yeah, let me uh, – so 34 points. Was that these, Something like that. So, yeah, to introduce these guys, I, I'm going to put on a different shade of red here because, yeah, we've got a couple of Wolverines from – Grove City College down in Pennsylvania. The pack has joined the D3 fray. And this is an interesting story, Frank. The reason why we kind of jumped on this, I mean, I know we've been, you know, we've been covering uh, Grove City off and on here for a couple of seasons now. But two senior strong safeties, Jared Hurd and Patrick Mark, um, same position. Both, senior, both seniors both play strong safety. Uh Jared had seven tackles. Patrick had six in the 37-14 win over St. Vincent on last Friday night. But after that game on Friday night, they got into their lacrosse uniforms and went and played lacrosse. Jared is a midfielder, and Patrick is a defender. These guys had double duty on a weekend when during COVID. How is this even possible? How could they, how could they possibly do this? I, I do have to add a disclaimer. They didn't, like – dress up in their lacrosse jersey immediately after football and immediately well, yeah. play lacrosse the and get sleep. Day. Yeah, the next <laughs> Yeah. But still, I mean, it, pretty remarkable thing. And it's and it's a very wide D3 kind of a story because that typically would not be happening at any upper-level division types of schools. And it's one of the great things about Division three sports that you have these student-athletes out there that can potentially um, play both. And Jared and Patrick pulled it off, so we had to find out what that was like, and we'll talk to them in a little bit. We're splitting up the show into two this week, uh, and the second show will be either Thursday or Friday, depending on uh, what we can uh, get off the ground and get together. We'll tell you a little bit more about what's going on with that in a little bit, but we'll be talking about week eight, or actually, yeah, week eight schedules uh, coming up. Yeah. Let me read this. Let me read the screen and see what week it is. Oh, it's week eight coming up yeah. uh, next week. Yeah. Uh, we'll be looking at those uh, schedules uh, on the next show and maybe even doing some predictions because we know you missed us in our predictions. Listen, if Carson Johnson says, he gives us props from Montclair for, you know, putting it out there, as he said, excuse me, getting all choked up about this, uh, then, you know, we should put our predictions back out there when we have this many games going on. We'll, we'll be selective in it, obviously. Uh, we, yep. we don't pick all 31-ish games or whatever it's going to be down to ultimately. It's going to be, 30, it's going to be 37 uh, if they all stay as, as scheduled. We'll see. We've I lost think, like five this past weekend. Yeah, so. I think we lost a couple more too along the way. So we may be in the mid-30s yep. and uh, going down toward 30. But ultimately still successful getting that many off the ground. Anyway, we got a lot of clips to talk about. I think we have nine games uh, featuring uh, video clips here for us. Or we're featuring nine wow. games with video clips. So let's roll. It's time for crunch time for week seven of the spring 2021 football season. Let's start in the OAC. We had a lot of Friday night action here, folks, so get used to Friday on your screen Ten. for a little bit. Yep. So first off, John Carroll and Mount Union. Uh, we're, we're not going to go too deep into the video dive here, uh, but we wanted to show you, and you're seeing them already on your screen, I believe, three touchdowns from Braxton Plunk to Wayne Ruby. In fact, that's not all of them. We have to go an extra session, basically, on the show to show you all four touchdowns that Ruby had. <laughs> uh, Wayne Ruby Jr. set a Mount Union single-game single receiving record in the regular season, we believe. 16 catches, 182 yards, four touchdowns. Plunk threw seven touchdowns, 38 for 58 passing, 521 
uh, in terms of yardage, 5227 final, in case I didn't say it earlier. And the Mount Union defense with three interceptions. Did you say? Did you say? It sounded like you said plunked through four touchdowns. I didn't. I think it was seven. Oh no! I caught four. I I think I said seven. But uh, if I didn't, uh, I'm going to say it again because I was going to go back to and say (laughs) seven touchdowns. I mean, are you kidding me? So uh, underscore the seven. Yeah, John Carroll's uh, wide receiver Brendan Fugue with uh, 10 receptions, 143 yards, two touchdowns. Great back and forth game in the beginning, but then Mount Union pulled away. Let's look at video clips also here. Wilmington at Otterbein. We'll start here early as a punt block by Mitch Moyer. Uh, it leads to a 14 yard loss. And ultimately in midway through the second quarter, because we were scoreless in the first, Otterbein's Logan Farmer with a five yard touchdown run made it seven to zero Otterbein. Then Wilmington responds in the third quarter with eight minutes left. Lathan Jones, a 12-yard touchdown pass from Kyle Barrett, made it 7-7. The teams traded field goals in the fourth quarter, make it 10-10 late in the fourth. But with 36 seconds left after an eight-play, 97-yard drive in two minutes and 24 seconds, there is that Lathan Jones again from Kyle Barrett from 21 yards out to win the game for Wilmington in dramatic fashion again. This time it was 17 to 10. That's their fourth straight win. Lathan Jones with 21 uh, yard uh, pass uh, is part of a uh, great night for him uh, from Kyle Barrett, obviously, who's 22-37, he said. Uh, 224, <laughs> two touchdowns, two interceptions. And, you know, Wilmington, just a cardiac pack of sorts throughout this. Cardiac Quakers. Yeah, exactly. Throughout this small season. Baldwin Wallace uh, loses to Marietta 30 to 20, as Marietta had uh, led 13, 16 to 13 and a half, including a 98-yard extra point return after uh, Baldwin Wallace touchdown. Seeing a lot of these two-point returns this uh, small season, uh, more yeah. than I can ever remember before, at least in our East Region coverage. Uh, two Bryce Agnew rushing touchdowns in the fourth quarter uh, helped Marietta get to that win, and four turnovers certainly helped as well, and six sacks. Finally, in the OAC, Heidelberg 66, Capital 13. As Heidi, uh, I'll gain Capital 685 to 232. You see the rest of the accolades there. OAC action, my friend. Uh, pick it out. I mean, Wilmington, obviously, probably not the contender of contenders in the world. But at the same time, I mean, look, Mount Union has a little bit of trouble with John Carroll. Wilmington's sitting there at 2-0. It's an interesting conference shaping up right now. Yeah, and certainly we're seeing a ton of offensive firepower. I mean, you know, obviously the Raiders pulled away and, and they, they put up a lot of yards and points. But you also see Heidelberg here with almost 700 yards of total offense. You know, there's some teams that can score in this conference. And so we should be some, see some high-scoring Friday night games for the rest of the spring. Let's talk about the pack. And first off, Grove City. At, pack is back. Uh, yeah, they are uh, hosting St. Vincent in this game. And we'll take a look at basically the Josh East show with Cody Gust- uh, Gustafson as his uh, co-host uh, for at least the beginning, beginning portion of it. <laughs> I can talk, I swear, folks. Yep. Just trust me on this. Yeah, about five minutes into the first quarter, Grove City gets their first touchdown. Gustafson with the 64-yard touchdown reception from East made it 7-0. Six minutes later, same tandem, same result. But this time from 65 yards out, he ends the game with three receiving touchdowns says Gustafson we won't show you the third touchdown to him because I want to instead show you the third touchdown by East this time to Cameron Drake 
113 yards for that touchdown reception. 2.18 left in the second quarter. It was 21-0. There was no looking back for Grove City. They won the game 37-14. Gustafson with six catches, 180 yards, including those three touchdowns. Uh, Grove City outgained St. Vincent 525 to 336 in total yardage. And uh, defensive lineman RJ Debo with 11 tackles, including two sacks for Grove City. Also in the pack, Westminster 42, Bethany 21. Westminster had a big lead of 42-21 at halftime. And we'll uh, talk about Trejor Owens, though, from Bethany, at least with nine tackles. But they just had no consistency on offense in that game. Moving right along to the NCAC, the NCAC, I guess, uh, if you want to call it such lovingly. It was Denison 38, Ohio Wesleyan 37. No scoring in the first quarter, despite these 75 combined points. In the second quarter, Ohio Wesleyan's Kenny Streb receives a 50-yard touchdown pass from Zane Rees, makes a 7-0 OWU. But 13 seconds later, Walker James gets a 14-yard fumble recovery, and at a blink of an eye, basically, now it's 14-0 after that squirrelessness. At halftime, 21-14 in favor of OWU is it was basically uh, you know, attempted to come back by Denison in that half. In the third quarter, they complete the comeback, does Denison, four minutes into it, as Peyton Vining gets a 40-yard touchdown pass from Drew Dawkins. It's 21-21, and here's a case of the cameraman couldn't keep up with the play, but we'll just keep on moving here. Teams traded touchdowns, but OWU misses their extra point, so Denison holds a 28-27 lead, eventually 35-34 with 7.50 left. Ohio Wesleyans gave Philhauer with a 43-yard field goal with 5.21 left. That means a 37-35 OWU. Anything you can do, we can do better, said Dennison. With 23 seconds yeah. left, Pat Kramer, 28-yard field goal, wins the game 38-37 in favor of Dennison. Drew Dawkins had a 19 for 29 passing night, 235, three touchdowns, had 13 rushes for 65 yards on the ground as well. And Zane Reeves for LWU had 18 for 31, 245, and three touchdowns on his QB line. Shane Quinn with 17 total tackles for Ohio Wesleyan, which is one of the highest totals we have seen. This I think it's spring. the highest, yeah. Let's finish out Friday night before I give it back to you here. Ferrum at Southern Virginia. In the second quarter with just five seconds left, we're already fast-forwarding here a little bit because the score was getting a little out of hand. Ferrum's... Tyland uh, McElhaney with a 19-yard touchdown pass from Titus Jones made it 27-7 for their halftime score in favor of Ferrum. Southern Virginia would score once in the third on a Jake Lindsay run, once in the fourth on a Matthew Johansson one-yard touchdown reception, so they're making it close and into the fourth quarter with 8.49 left. Matthew Johansson with his nifty 33-yard run makes it Southern Virginia 28, Ferrum 27. They take the lead after that big deficit. 115 left in the fourth, though. Deshaun, do, uh, uh, the name isn't completed here, uh, so I'm going to say Dupuy, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong in that, with an 11-yard run. I, I hate box scores that truncate names, and we don't catch it until later here, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll work on that. Uh, with an 11-yard run, makes it 33-28 in favor of Ferrum, and that was the end of the scoring. Ferrum wins it, a, a gutty, gutty comeback by Southern Virginia, but an even guttier moment for Ferrum to bounce back in the former battle of winless teams, Ferrum gets the win, 33-28. Uh, 
you know, JB, a game like this, we looked at a lot of games this season where I think that Bellhaven game back when against Louisiana College, for instance, teams are fighting back after giving up big leads. It's becoming a commonplace thing. And it's, it's one of those reflections we keep saying shows how these teams are trying really hard to show us how much spring football means to them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are, there are certain you know games that get a little you know out of hand here and there. I think actually that that uh, the Westminster halftime score was forty two to seven, not twenty one, which was the final. They scored a couple late, but yeah, I mean there were some great back and forth games. I mean, really that the Ohio Wesleyan Denison game was outstanding. Uh, you know, long term, long time local rivals, and this a great game on Friday night. And yeah, you can see in the in, in the videotape, even if it well, runs off camera, these kids are playing real hard, giving it their all and, and really, you know, putting it out there and having hopefully having some fun while they're doing it. Hampton City continues to roll 43-12 against Guilford as they outgain Guilford 513-207 in yardage. Brendan Weinberg with 14 for 24, 315, three touchdowns. Uh, Ed Newman, uh, one of his favorite, favorite receivers with four receptions, 148, 85-yard uh, touchdown catch about midway through the second quarter. Also, Randolph Macon 52, Shenandoah 38. Shenandoah had a lead in this game of 31-30 to 30 until 9.59 left, and then 22 unanswered points by Randolph Macon pulled them away in this game. Uh, Rashadeen Bird Jr. Uh, with 10 rushes, 143 yards, and three touchdowns. Two of those runs were for 51 and 68 yards for the Shenandoah player. And Presley Egbers from Randolph-Macon with 153 pass yards and two touchdowns, also two interceptions we do need to note. But he also had 19 rushes, 174 on the ground, and two touchdowns on the ground. That's a heck of a stat line for Egbers. Let's go to Saturday, because Friday seemed like a long night right there already. <laughs> yeah, sure did. In the ASC, which is moving toward crossover and championship mode this coming week, more on that later in the week, it was Bellhaven, 21, Southwestern, 7. This was another game with zero points uh, in the second half, so we're going to show you basically first half action here. First, Michael Simpson with a 48-yard touchdown reception from Mayoa Asangunla. Uh, trying to get the name right, Mayoa. We're working on this three minutes into the game. <laughs> Made it 7-0 Bellhaven. They added a touchdown later in the first quarter, but then in the second, up 14-0. TJ Hersey, a 78-yard missed field goal return, uh, makes it 21-0 in favor of Bellhaven. Uh, we didn't get a video, unfortunately, of Eric Ovai's uh, 48-yard touchdown pass from Landry Gilpin for Southwestern. They lost feed, basically, during that play, unfortunately. And it was Southwestern's own broadcast, so don't blame us. 21-7 is the final. And in that game, I can tell you that uh, Gilpin had 18 for 39 passing, 264, one touchdown, two interceptions, though, for Southwestern. Mayoi Asangunla, 11 for 12 passing, 146 and one touchdown. And Brad Foley, the running back, 22 rushes, 93 yards. Also in the ASC, Howard Payne, 24, McMurray, 3. That's Howard Payne had about 200 more yards than McMurray. Uh, Landon Kinney, 15 for 27, 231, two touchdowns in their uh, defense. Howard Payne had three interceptions in the game. Also, Mary Harden-Baylor, 65, Louisiana College, 20. Somebody got a little angry at the James Baker predictions and started putting up some points this week, <laughs> I can tell you. Louisiana College uh, like scored it. 
Yeah, they scored first and tied the game uh, at 13-13 midway through the second quarter, but Mary Hart Baylor, the defense gets a pick six and a fumble recovery. Offense punches in another touchdown. As time expired, take a 37-20 lead at halftime. You can see the stats right there for the individual players, but obviously game flow went dramatically in Mary Harden Baylor's favor. Also, Harden Simmons 58, Silver State 6, so they cemented the what we saw coming basically. The championship game being Mary Harden Baylor and Harden Simmons. Uh, the Cowboys led 36 to 6 at the half, had a 463 yard yardage. Uh, disparity, let's say, against Ross State. And Kyle Jones had 20 for 28, 233, two touchdowns, one interception on the game. In the USA South, we will add here some clips from the Maryville-Huntingdon game. And in this game, only first quarter scoring was a 21-yard Connor Rutledge field goal and make it 3-0 Maryville. With 46 seconds left in the first half, Landon Cotney gets a really nice 50-yard run here for Huntington. He made it 7-3 for our halftime score. The only second-half touchdown was also, or was instead by Maryville, about midway through that third quarter, and it's T.J. Coleman with a 13-yard pass from Trevor Thomas to make it 10-7 Maryville. Will Edwards, though, gets a 20-yard field goal, two minutes left for Huntington, in the fourth quarter, and that ties us up at 10 to 10. We go to bonus football at that point, overtime. Maryville's Connor Rutledge just gets his field goal to clear the crossbar from 39 yards out to lead 13 to 10 in their first uh, possession of overtime. Huntington gets a chance to respond and does with the Landon Cottonese three-yard touchdown run. 16-13 final. Huntington uh, wins the game, and the players, as you, you probably could see there, looked absolutely worn out for Huntington. Kind of a muted uh, celebration as they were just tired. And you can't blame them for that because, remember, it's been a while since we played that much football uh, if you're either one of those teams. Uh, we'll look at the fact that there was a uh, 15 tackle number by Casey Peppers from Huntington. So uh, 17 earlier we saw from one player, 15, 8, half bad. Cotney finished uh, 16 for 33 for 167 uh, in an interception, but added 12 rushes for 90 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. Uh, you saw them, but uh, yeah, you saw them both actually. Also, Methodist 24, North Carolina Wesleyan 9. In uh, this uh, game, uh, the video is no longer available. If you want to understand why, look it up on Twitter. Pretty easy to find. We're not getting into it. Uh, Brandon Bullens, 24 for 34 for Methodist, uh, 206, one touchdown, one interception. And running backs, Keishon, Pete, and Taekwon Edie had one touchdown each for Methodist. In the MIAA, no video available. Thanks, Trine. Uh, Albion, 27, Trine, 16. One of our tri champs from the fall falls in this game as Jack Bush. I watched it. <laughs> yep. 26 or 37 passing. Could, could you somehow put video on the screen then of this game? I don't know if you can do that. Uh, yeah, I wish. Uh, 327, three touchdowns and a six rush day for another touchdown on the ground for Bush. Uh, Albion's Justin Thomas, receiver, gets six receptions, 143, two touchdowns. And Trines, Alex Prince, 18 for 36 passing, 273, one touchdown, one interception. Decent game, but Trine taken down by Albion. And also Adrian, 21, Alma, 6. And if I can flip a page, I'll tell you that the first score of the game didn't happen until 2.49 left in the first half as Gage Palis caught a 29-yard pass from Jack Werzer to cap a 10-play 99-yard drive in about four and a half minutes 
go from there. Uh, pretty much, you see the score as Adrian's Jack Werzer gets a 16 for 22 passing day, 191, one touchdown, plus 13 rushes for another touchdown. And Alma's Odin Safradine had a game high 13 tackles. Well, one of our tri champs falls, and here's the score of the other tri champ from the fall. They fall. 51-44. Let's get into this game. We have plenty to show you from Bluffton at Hanover. And first off, 52 seconds. Let me tell you, midway through the second quarter, Hanover led 21-7. We're, we're kind of skipping ahead here. We got it because there's too much action in this game. Uh, with 52 points. seconds left in the first half, Darian Greeley gets a one-guard run. Makes it 23-13 Hanover as Bluffton tries to catch up in this game. And I should uh, tell you that you're going to also see the scoop and score of another extra point that went awry. This time it was a bad snap. That's why it's 23-13 from a 21-7 score before that. But then Hanover, after getting a chunk of yards, fumbles a snap. It goes to Bluffton. Bluffton was at the 39-yard line with about three seconds left. Has one more chance in the first half to score. And Deontay Hall... Uh, reels in a Zachary Novus pass from 39 yards out. Oh yeah, the camera operator would, didn't help us see that for that back, but we'll just keep moving. Uh, it's 23-20 at halftime in favor of Hanover. The teams traded two touchdowns each each in the third before the next uh, play that we're going to show you, and it was 37-30 Hanover because of that. Before this, Walt Ballinger 78-yard touchdown run, one of the longest runs from scrimmage we've seen in this season 44 to 30 in favor of Hanover 126 left in the third quarter but Bluffton wouldn't go away Malik Tucker with a six-yard touchdown run here makes it 44 37 with seven minutes left a few plays later a fumble by Walt Bollinger was recovered by Bluffton's Loudon Salbeam as you'll see here at the 44-yard line of Hanover and just a couple plays later, Bluffton cashes in as Zachary Nobis, the quarterback, goes in for a nifty run of his own, 29 yards to tie the game, 44-44. The teams traded punts on three and outs, but Hanover had one more chance and cashed in with 15 seconds left. It's Matthew Weimer, the quarterback, had a one-yard run on the sneak play, a 12-play, 91-yard drive, and 129 gave them a 51-44 lead. Here's the final Hail Mary attempt by Bluffton. It hits right around the back of the end zone line, but didn't give the receivers really enough chance to get back there, to be honest with you. Final score, 51-44 in favor of Hanover. Uh, Zach Nobis, we will tell you from Bluffton, went 21 for 43, passing 357, three touchdowns, added 13 rushes, and the touchdown we showed you. But uh, Sean Cohn for Hanover, 23 rushes, 208 yards, two touchdowns. Also, Walt Ballinger, 11 rushes, 162, and three touchdowns really made up for that fumble, uh, fumble and uh, ensuing recovery by Bluffton with those numbers, uh, did Ballinger. Uh, but Hanover had some great contributions from those two. Brady Hounstein, uh, Howenstein with a 14 tackle day for Bluffton. Also, Defiance 22, Manchester 16. Uh, this was uh, one of those back and forth games that a lot of people were paying attention to as the day developed. Tyshawn Freeman, 26 rushes, 151 and one touchdown. And Thomas Coltrane for Defiance with 14 tackles to go with his three and a half tackles for loss, or they're included in the 14 tackles, I should say, and one forced fumble, which was recovered. Mount St. Joseph, 56. Uh, Franklin, 19. 
Uh, Josh Taylor from Mount St. Joseph with a 21 rush day, 225 yards, and five touchdowns. Their defense adds five sacks, six tackles for loss, and an interception. Uh, I'm going to take a breath here. Uh, so you tell me what you thought of that uh, Bluffton Hanover game. Well, that was a great. That was probably the one of the best games of the entire weekend. It was back and forth, and there were just a few times where you thought that maybe Bluffton could take the lead, or or maybe Hanover would run away with it. Ultimately, I think you know it just was one of those great conference rivalry games. A lot of back and forth action, and uh, you know ultimately the um, uh, you know Hanover hung on, and, and they're still the top dog in the in the Heartland. But you got to give Bluffton a lot of credit. They they really took them to the limit, and it was a great, outstanding game. Could have said it better myself. Got my voice back here. Let's go with the NACC. No video here. We'll just go run through the scores quickly. Wisconsin Lutheran 28, Rockford 14. As Rockford had a 36-plus minute time of possession advantage, but didn't score until the fourth quarter. You got to score with that uh, time uh, advantage if you're going to win the game. 2014 in favor of Wisconsin Lutheran. Lakeland 19, Concordia Wisconsin 10. As Lakeland trailed for the entire first half until 27 seconds remaining. When uh, Charltez Nunnery got the 13-play, 70-yard drive with a six-yard touchdown run, Lakeland ends up winning that game 19-10. Stats on the screen for those that uh, want to see the stat lines. Benedictine 28, Concordia Chicago 0. Uh, Benedictine's Alex Lopez tight end scored two touchdowns, including a 73-yarder to open up a 21-0 lead in the second quarter, and that was pretty much all they needed because the defense pitched yep. a shutout as George Wilkins had 10 tackles. Aurora, 42. Eureka, 7. Gavin Zimbelman, remember him? And all those touchdowns he threw in 2019? Well, he's back. Yep. Three he's touchdowns, back. 42, 11, and 53 yards, pacing Aurora to a 28-7 lead. Uh, he had two more in the second half. Uh, that was all first half, I should say, above there. Uh, so, basically, a five-touchdown day, 290 yards, two interceptions. Don Beebe can't be thrilled about that. But uh, Eureka's mm -hmm. lone scorer was 11-yard Nathan uh, Garter, uh, Garrard to Sean Ratliff pass after Eureka got the ball at the Aurora 17-yard line. Uh, we also had one non-conference uh, game uh, that uh, technically is falling into the NCAC uh, category, I guess. Greenville uh, loses to DePaul 41-7. The Tigers scored 28 unanswered points to open the game. The halftime score is 28-7. Give credit to Chase Andrews, who had a big day. with was 14 for 27, passing 206 yards, two touchdowns. But on the ground, nine rushes, 92 yards, and three touchdowns. And also the defense with three interceptions and three sacks for DePaul. The CCIW had one game play, Milliken 38, Illinois Wesleyan 28. Milliken jumped out to a 20-0 first quarter lead due to three Cal Porter, uh, Porte t a touchdown passes. He finished the day 21 for 36, 316, three touchdowns. In the end, Jack, we've got action to show you here in the Wesley-Montclair State game. In uh, the first quarter, Wesley was up early 7-0, but the last play of the first quarter Look at this with Montclair having the ball, not for long as Mike Brewer takes a 76-yard interception return in the last play of the first quarter to the house. It's a pick six, making it 14-0 Wesley. Montclair would answer is Abilene Mendez. It's a six-yard run. It was his fumbled snap. They're lucky to even retain this ball. Mendez picked it up himself and ran it into the left side, making it 14-6. Montclair trailing by eight points as they headed toward halftime. In the second half, Wesley's Brady Walters, again, that camera didn't show you the whole thing, as he gets a 19-yard touchdown run to the left side as he reverses field in this one. 
and that makes it 20 to 6 Wesley, but Montclair wouldn't go away as the host. With 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, Jaquiel Birch with a 9-yard touchdown run of his own to the right side. He makes it 20 to 13, Wesley leading still. Let's look at the uh, play. We'll look at a little bit more after crunch time. This was the last chance for Montclair on fourth down. They needed a chunk of yards. Here's the throw over the middle of Carson Johnson, and he is absolutely level. Penalty flag thrown. Wesley awarded the ball. We'll talk more, like I said, later about it, but Wesley was given the ball, and game is over. They game win the over, game yeah. by a score 20-13. to 13. Uh, As I uh, try to find you the right stat line here, that's the page. Uh, it was Jaquil Birch, <laughs> 18 for 37, 215. One rush touchdown, but the two interceptions uh, didn't help matters uh, for his day. Brady Walter, 16 for 27 for Wesley, 184, one rush touchdown. Jalen Harris and Zach Saccone each had 11 tackles for Montclair. Sunday we had two games. We'll stay in the NJAC for a moment to uh, give you the last uh, NJAC game. It was Salisbury 30, Christopher Newport 5, and Salisbury outgained Christopher Newport 182 to 183, uh, 382 to 183, he said. Uh, four different rushers scored touchdowns for Salisbury, uh, which had 43 rushes, 321 yards in the game on the ground. In the MIAA, Kalamazoo falls to Olivet, 55-14, as the Comets led 34-7 at the half. Caleb Jarrett, 13 for 19, 308 yards, four touchdowns and an interception, also had a rushing touchdown. And there's the rest of the stat lines. I'm tired, time to say... That was crunch time for week seven of the 2021 spring football season in Division Three. Speaking of stat lines, one thing I have to quickly correct, which was my fault, is that Josh Taylor of Mount St. Joseph's uh, isn't a running back. I saw the five rushing touchdowns and maybe just made an assumption that that's what that was. But then I saw the D3 football uh, team of the week, and he's a quarterback because he also happened to throw for almost 200 yards and two passing touchdowns. So there were two quarterbacks that had seven touchdowns this past weekend. Uh, you know, uh, Plunk from Mount Union, who, who did them all through the air. But then we had Taylor, who had five, five you know, or seven total Five on the ground, two uh, two in the air. I have to read the read the stat lines or the starting lineups a little better. And uh, as far as the player from bef- before, the last name was Dupuy, so D U P U Y. Somehow got I don't know why why the Y got chopped off. But that's from Ferrum, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get it right next time. I think it's Dupuy. I actually may have uh, nailed it because I think that's the pronunciation. Yeah, with D-U-Y been... at the end. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like I. Gave short shrift to a stat that you wanted to point out. Uh, it may have been uh, one of the OAC games. Let me find it here. Yeah, in the Heidelberg game, uh, you put a note here, and I, I didn't say it in crunch time, so let's talk about it. Um, Maceo Matthews Jr., he caught nine passes yeah. for a career high, 208 yards and three touchdowns. Incredible performance, Maceo. Uh, that 200-yard game is the first one for Heidelberg since Dante Dye, the former Bucks player, had 213 yards right. against Ohio Northern in 2014. Great stat find by you. I apologize for not including it in crunch time itself. Also, let's take a look at the play that we were talking about. We'll zoom in on it a little bit here. So, the the question is multifold as to the Carson Johnson hit uh, that he took there. And, you know, whether or not Montclair should have retained the ball. We talked with uh, Terry Small, who is the NJAC commissioner. He reached out to Mike Scala on our behalf and asked 
the question about this situation. The first question, obviously, is it targeting or not? And you don't have to use the crown of your helmet for targeting. If you go in any way down and into the neck region of a player with a, a general downward trajectory of your body as a tackler and against a defenseless receiver in that position, then you can be called for targeting still. It is not just the crown of the helmet that it has to be involved in the situation. So we've seen right. some chatter on Twitter on that. Uh, our friend Jim Cat Zero knows that's not the correct answer and believes it should have been targeting. The answer was no. Uh, Mike Scala said it was not targeting that was called ultimately. We couldn't hear on the broadcast what the call was. Um, okay. Now the next question is, you know, the ball is still sort of bouncing around. It looked like it hit the ground right after Johnson tried to catch it. Uh, it's still sort of players going at it to try to get the ball. The hit occurs right after the ball hits the ground. So now is there a continuation? The analogy is fourth quarter or fourth down, you run out of bounds, you're hit late out of bounds. Your uh, the penalized team is still awarded the ball first and 10, 15 yards back. That's the rule, okay. whether you agree with it or not. Now is the incompletion scenario analogous analogous? The answer pretty much is if the ball's on the ground, yes. If the ball is still bouncing around in the air, no. Uh, you, that hit will be called in play at that point. So uh, mm -hmm. Mike Scala said the foul was post-possession, thus why they did not retain the ball. Uh, apparently the referee did explain it on the microphone, but you know, again, we could not hear it on the broadcast. And if we can't hear it on the broadcast in this day and age, uh, it doesn't even happen because no crowd is there to hear it. I guess this is one of those questions of, do you agree with the way it was called in terms of how the rule book reads, and do you agree with the rule, ultimately? You saw it. What do you think? I mean... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there really a right, is there a right answer, a wrong answer here? I mean, for, from, a fan, from a fan perspective, it would have been kind of interesting if they did basically call it like Coach Cat said they maybe could or should have, and therefore would have given uh, the Red Hawks 15 more yards and one last desperation shot to try to tie or maybe win the game. Um, but sometimes some of these actions are so subjective, like, well, where was the contact made? You know, real time that there's no slow-mo in D3. Officials are doing the best they can. So, you know, I guess it is what it is. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The game's over. Uh, Wesley's going to, you know, play next week. I think they're still technically have an opportunity to um, win the, I guess the the North NJAC title if they win the rest of their games. If there is such a thing, I mean, I know Salisbury won the South apparently uh, by going two zero and beating Christopher Newport. Um, but hey, you know, I was really happy though to see that Wesley's going to get one last game against Stevenson on April 9th. We'll talk about that soon uh, enough. But we would. As in our prior broadcast, we were saying, you know, let's get these guys one last game. We found out yesterday that they are going to have one. So great for them. Tough loss for um, Montclair. They have a, a basically kind of like a bye week before their um, last last matchup, which is going to be in week nine. So I'm sure, uh, you know, everyone there and, and Montclair is looking at the tape and, and looking to find ways to improve. 
Well said. Uh, we uh, brought up the ASC Championship. We're going to talk a lot more about that later in the week. I, I think uh, we have a lot more time then to do it without boring people on it. But the ASC Championship coming up and the crossover games. But Mary Harden-Baylor, Harden-Simmons is going to be a great game. Uh, no matter who Big you're going to pick in that one. And you'll be picking somebody in that game uh, in our predictions on this late part of the week episode Ooh. coming up. Uh, do the honors one more time. Let's send it to interview uh, Grove yeah. City. Uh, uh, one of them scored a goal. Actually, I'm not sure if we said this in the open or not. Patrick scored a goal as a, as a long as a long pole, huh? A long pole goal. That's pretty cool. Um, as a defenseman, you don't get many opportunities like that. But yeah, we we had to talk with with Jared and Patrick to to get a sense of what it's like these days as a especially as a senior student athlete, uh, dual sport senior athlete, being able to play football and lacrosse in the same season. Never happened really ever before like this, um, not in this format anyway. So here's here's Jared Hurd and Patrick Mark from Grove City talking about what it's like to, you know, basically you know doing double time uh, here in a pandemic. Jared, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I, you know, this is Monday when we're recording this, so you guys might still be a little bit tired. If you need to take a nap after what you've gone through this weekend during this interview, <laughs> you just feel free to do so because. Uh, this is quite a story, and we told it before uh, we brought you guys on, but uh, let's start with Jared. Jared, you know, Friday night games, you see this forming on the schedule for football. Lacrosse, kind of a Saturday or Sunday sport for a lot of schools out there, maybe a, one game during the week here and there. When did you know that it was going to be possible to play football and lacrosse, and did you have any doubts about it at first when you looked at this whole situation? I mean, you take walk us through how this idea for you at least formed. We'll I'll go over to Patrick after that. Yeah, so for me, um, the idea really came as soon as uh, the football um, schedule got postponed till the spring, and it was really uncertain at that time because we didn't have a spring football or lacrosse schedule due to COVID, like postponements and stuff and so we like just I just talked to with both the coaching staffs of the lacrosse and football team and really discussed um, practice schedules because we were both practicing in the fall and so we kind of used that time to like figure out how like sharing time between practices and other stuff how that would work and so it really became a reality towards like the end of uh, the fall practice uh, schedules before we went home for uh, the semester. And we kind of just decided that first we tried practicing both sports in the same day, and that didn't work out the best um, academically or just physically. Um, and so we decided on splitting days. And so then we, after we got the schedules, we split days through the spring. Patrick, uh, Coach Donato, was he supportive when you approached him about it? Uh, Jared sounds like, uh, or makes it sound like he did go to the coaches ahead of time to make sure this was okay by them. What was Coach Donato's reaction, and how how did you form your decision? Was it similar to what Jared said? Um, yeah, well, Coach Donato was extremely supportive in our decision to play both. Like, it was almost surprising how excited he was that we wanted to play both and we were going to go through with playing both. Um, so, and I, in the fall, I decided that I was going to play lacrosse and then come back in the fall for my final season. Um, but then, I don't know, I kind of decided that if I could play both, I would. And that's kind of how I formed my decision on playing both this season. 
So we'll get into the we'll get into the Friday night win you guys had over St. Vincent in a second. But what is it like as as student athletes to to kind of have to run through? You know, you got different practices, different positions, different game plans, like totally different sports. Although there's certain contact elements involved in being a football safety and and uh, being a lacrosse player, but still, I mean, is it hard to kind of keep it all up there, or is it you just kind of compartmentalize it and say, okay? Tonight, I'm, I'm playing football. Tomorrow, doing lacrosse, and it's just as easy as that. Yeah, I think uh, for me, like one of the things, like football, we've talked about it a lot. One of the phrases that I'm, I'm sure you've heard uh, Coach Dito talk about is uh, be where your feet are. And so that's been big through this whole process of just, you know, I mean, when we're at football practice, you know, I mean, just be where your feet are and be at football practice and don't be worrying about lacrosse or school. And then the opposite's the same when you're at lacrosse practice. You know, what I mean, we're not worried about football or school or you know, I mean, stuff outside of that. So that's been big for me. Patrick, you sure of that? Um, yeah, it's exactly how Jared put it. Um, it's like we we go to football practice. We learn we need to like we learn about what we need to know for that week. Um, and usually what happens is we have football practice for a couple of days in a row, so we're able to absorb as much as we can um, for, say, for, like, Monday to, like, Wednesday. And then go to foot or lacrosse practice on Thursday, learn what we need to know about lacrosse for that game for that week. Um, and then we just we just play on the games. And we usually – I mean, we played against St. Miss, so we know what we were doing. So I'm assuming that we can carry that over for the rest of the games for the season. Uh, first, Patrick, real quick, are there any other two-sport athletes on the football team because of what's being able to be done with this whole Friday night scheduling situation? For instance, baseball, uh, has that uh, been uh, you know, a two-sport scenario for any of the football players? I know our friend Will Bellamy at Union, for instance, was kind of debating in his own head about what would happen if Union had played football because he's a good baseball player as well. And it would have been a Saturday, Saturday situation, most likely Union. So they didn't, he wouldn't have been able to go through with it. But in uh, Will's case, uh, baseball uh, is his dual sport. Are there any dual sport baseball players that did or didn't choose to ultimately go to sports in this? Um, I don't think there are any baseball players on the football team, but I know there are some players on the football team who are in like track and field. Uh, I know some, someone throws shot put, and I think he's practicing with both right now. Um, but as far as I know, it's just me, Jared, and the other player. I think James Perrani is his name. I think he's doing both as well. I, I want to uh, now come to a, a full question for both of you. I'll, I'll start again with Patrick. We'll go to Jared uh, second on this one. Why? Why do this in terms of this spring season? And I get your seniors, and I don't know if you're coming back in the fall uh, for your proverbial senior football year or not because of what the NCAA is offering in this situation. Up to you guys if you want to tell us your plan. We always leave it up to the players on that. But your team for the last two full seasons, we've chronicled the ECAC bowl berths, the rebirth of Grove City football, brick by brick, and everything else that's gone along with it. And I uh, delivered some good news to you guys along the way uh, as well in our ECAC show. So uh, thanks for watching. But uh, <laughs> why, why do this? What, what did you have to prove or what did you want to prove in this? And, you know, if you want to give us some clue as to what's next for you guys, feel free. But it's up to you guys. Patrick, go first. Um, well, I mean, the reason I'm playing both right now is the same reason I've 
I'm playing both like I played through both throughout my college career like I couldn't pick a sport over the other so I decided like if I could do two sports in one year for four years I could probably figure out a way to play two sports in one season I uh, I come I plan to come back in the fall for the final football season um, yeah. for me the real reason why is that you know I, mean, I look at you know I mean myself now and in the future like down the road like I know looking back in my shoes then looking at me now if I didn't have the opportunity if I had the opportunity to play another year of sports and I didn't capitalize on that opportunity I'd be you know I mean somewhat frustrated with myself and so really like I just love competing and love getting after it you know I mean with I mean whether it's in lacrosse or football and so like just the love of each game is just very high in my mind and so I just love to compete and then my current uh, plans I plan to return to Grove City for a master's program and so I'll be playing football in the fall and then I'll be able to compete in lacrosse in the spring too. And the entire President's Athletic Conference just gasped in <laughs> complete horror and disgust by the fact that you guys are both coming back. JB, go ahead. Well, I, I know you guys had a big win on Friday night, and it's not the usual you know, Wolverine Den experience that we've seen on you know on film with these big crowds and everyone you know waving the towels and so on. But you know, what what was it like for you guys to you know after whatever four hundred and something days of, of waiting uh, to see if you were going to play another football game again? What was it like for you guys on Friday night to finally you know get get on the field under the Friday night lights and play some ball? Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, for me, it kind of felt weird, you know what I mean, going to classes on Fridays. Like, this is the first Friday game I've played since high school. And so, like, it kind of felt like like I've been anticipating this moment of getting back to playing football and competing for so long. But then, you know what I mean, the day of, like, the excitement was just building inside of me. And, like, it almost didn't feel like football until, like, we got out there and, like, I'm on kickoff. So, like, we kicked off to start the game. And as soon as that hit, like, yeah, I mean, everything came back and I kind of fell into like the old way of playing and just enjoying the sport. Patrick, when you heard that you guys were going to be getting back onto the field after 400 days or whatever it was going to end up being, what was your thought? I mean, did you start conditioning more so at that point? Walk us through kind of your last year to the degree you can. Um, well, we, well, first we started out with, uh, football practice. We had that, like that was regular. Um, and we found out that we weren't going to play anybody, but we found it, we saw it as an opportunity to get better because we knew that we weren't prepared in the fall, uh, to compete for PSC championships. But because that, because we weren't playing games, we were able to utilize that time to, uh, take steps to become a better team. And that's exactly what we did. Um, so it was kind of a blessing in disguise. I'd say. Well, you know, we did all this run-up on Friday night football and whatnot, and most of your games will be on Friday nights. But right now on the uh, schedule I'm looking at for Grove City, and we'll show it on the screen, I'm sure, right now, is that this week on the 25th of March, you are at Thursday Night Mellon. Football. Yep, Thursday Night Football. NBC not involved, or Fox or whomever else uh, broadcasts it these days. Uh, this is you guys on Thursday night against Carnegie Mellon, a team that uh, has always been a challenge. 
you know, Case Western Reserve, uh, Washington Jeff, and Carnegie Mellon and Grove City are all in the same conversation these days in the uh, PAC, the PAC, President's Athletic Conference, whatever you want to say. How good does it feel? I, I, I mean, you guys had a 37-14 win versus St. Vincent on Friday. Not the team that, you know, most people would assume could come out and beat you guys. We're going game two, big game. Kind of walk us through. Are you looking forward to this one? And how does it feel to kind of be the only game in town to a certain degree under the lights, or at least one of very few? I've got to look at the schedule for that. But uh, you're going to have some really feature, uh, feature story here. Uh, Patrick, what, what's your feeling on this one? Um, I'm really excited to play on Thursday. It is a quick turnaround. Um, and I think the matchup between us and Carnegie Mellon is going to be a great matchup. Uh, we beat them in double overtime. Um, last time we last football season, uh, it was a great game, and I'm really excited to play them. Uh, I'm really hoping for a good game like that again. Same question, Jared. Uh, I, Carnegie Mellon, uh, you know, defensively, you guys have done a decent job against them over time, uh, over, over the years you've been there. Uh, you know, would you, would you give us kind of a preview of this game a little bit too, to the degree you can? Yeah, from uh, watching film the past couple of days and seeing our scout and stuff, we seem that they're a very good team and talented team. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a battle, you know, as it's been in past years for who's going to come out on top. So. Well, definitely will be the main game in town, basically kicking off of week eight on now on the sort of the back half of the spring season. Um, so I guess from a, from a defensive perspective, though, you know, not taking any away from the Tartans, but this offense that you guys have been practicing against, you know, from the, from the fall and then leading into this spring, they've got, you know, I've heard of these, you know, this, this Gustafson guy is supposed to be a pretty good receiver. It's pretty, you know, pretty explosive offense. I mean, you guys were up pretty big early on. Um, what What is some of the, the advantages and disadvantages of having to practice against you know, these off this Grove City offensive team, uh, you know, versus, you know, the, some of the teams that you actually play in real games. And Jared, we'll go with you on this one. Yeah, I think, you know, having a great team, both offensively and defensively, in this time that we've had without games has allowed us to really compete within our team and make each other better. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, like having great receivers like, uh, Gustafson and Drake, who, as many have voted in the past, are some of the best in the conference and some of the best in the country. And so just having them to compete against every day has made us better, you know what I mean, forcing us to play at a high level. Patrick, I'm not going to ask you to answer the same question. I'm going to ask you uh, a little bit different question, actually. Senior strong safeties, both of you. Who's the better strong safety than the two of you? Um, well, I think we both have our strengths and weaknesses, per se. I think I'm better in the box, personally, and uh, Jared's better coverage, um, safety. But I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. Well put. Yeah, very diplomatic well answer. Done. Coach will be proud of you guys for that one. So, guys, you've watched the show enough or heard about us, I think, to know that the last thing we do for every uh, student-athlete interview is give the opportunity for shout-outs for any – uh, teammates, friends, family, significant others, coaches, anybody you want. The floor is going to be yours. 
Uh, since Patrick gave such a fine answer, we're going to let him go second on this. Uh, we'll give him a second to think about it, uh, Jared. So you're up first. Any shout-outs? Jared Hurd, senior strong safety from Grove City College. Yeah, I definitely want to give out a shout-out to my uh, family and then a shout-out to the coaching staff and just Grove City football and just Grove City athletics in, in general, just giving us the ability to compete this season through this COVID uh stricken, you know what I mean, times, and just allowing us to get back in the field. It's been a blessing, so. Todd Gibson, uh, your AD, definitely uh, deserves a lot of credit for that. We were talking throughout uh, this offseason about uh, things that they were doing, getting their own testing lab essentially set up for you guys uh, to make sure that that was covered. Um, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time uh, to get you guys on the field. I know that for sure, so indeed. Patrick, your turn, bud. Um, I guess I'd shout out my both my parents for being supportive and uh, the coaching staff uh, for both teams, just for being able to help us out and allowing us to play both sports at the same time, even though we play, uh, you know, significant roles on both teams. Hey, Patrick, uh, if I'm reading correctly, and I think JV caught this uh, earlier, uh, you're from an area I just flew out of, uh, basically. Well, I flew out of Lauderdale, but I it was in uh, Palm Beach County for uh, the last five days. Uh, so uh, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. JB, I, I think I know what your question is going to be. Well, you know, it's funny because when we first you know, pulled the, you know, did the full screen, I saw the flag up on the wall. I'm like, that's the Florida State flag right there, <laughs> you know. And so I, and I knew that that Patrick, uh, you had come, you know, come all the way up to from Pennsylvania to to, to Florida, from Florida to Pennsylvania to play college football and obviously lacrosse. I mean, how did Grove City get on your radar from all the way down there in, in what's basically almost South Florida? Um, well, my grandpa went back or went here in the 50s, I believe. And I've had a lot of like family members go here as well. Like my mom's like aunts, daughters and sons like went here as well. So I've known about Grove City for a long time. Um, and then I just made the connection my senior year of high school. Like I talked to the lacrosse coach and we got I got up here and we made it happen. So. And we do have to give uh, Jared a little bit of uh, credit here, Spring, Spring Mills, Pennsylvania. Uh, so uh, we'll give your hometown a shout out there, Jared, as well. Uh, but uh, you guys uh, have had an incredible career. Uh, you, you kind of saw the beginning of the uh, new resurgence of Grove City football. We'll put it that way. Uh, you guys have helped lead that uh, over these uh, years. And uh, the fact that you did come back to play spring football with lacrosse in your sights so says a lot about you guys. Uh, lacrosse will probably have a championship, uh, we, we believe, at this point in Division Three. Football will not. You're playing this more or less for the fun of the game, maybe a conference title if they get that all together in the end. So congratulations to you guys for showing what you're made of here in terms of this two-sports scenario and going through with it. Uh, what level of soreness from a scale of 1 to 10 were you on Sunday after uh, playing football on Friday and lacrosse on Saturday? Jared, 1 to 10. Uh, I'd have to say probably about a seven. I was pretty sore. Patrick? Probably like a seven or eight. Yeah, I was pretty I was pretty sore. And if I tried that or JB tried it, we'd be a 16, basically, uh, on a scale yeah, of 1 to 10 on soreness. <laughs> so, guys, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great talking with those guys. Uh, as we always say uh, to our friend Todd Gibson, the AD over at uh, Grove City, always impressed uh, with their uh, players. I, I was laughing when I was going through the clips uh, for Grove City uh, in their uh, win against um, 
St. Vincent, that they kept bringing up Wesley School's name. Every time I would land on a point to try to grab a clip, Wesley Schools, Wesley Schools. But it's like, you know, you got Cody Gustafson right now. I think you're okay, guys, yeah. <laughs> really. I, and yeah. East is doing a good job, too. And then you have these guys on defense, and uh, their heart shows through and the way they're trying to play both sports right now. Uh, that, that's just, those are athletes. Uh, what, what do we call them? The studs or whatever they uh, used to uh, call <laughs> them? Like dudes, that, yeah. dudes. That's what it dudes. was. Dudes. Yeah, but uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, they are uh, welcome at any sports table, I'm sure, the way that they are showing their prowess out there. They're not the only two out there. There are many more. Maybe uh, Greg, uh, you know, Wally Wabash, as we affectionately call him, uh, over at D3 Football, uh, can do an ATN on this phenomenon going on right now because we know of other people doing it. JB? Normally we do schedule right now. We're doing we're doing it later in the week in the second episode. So right now we're going to call it quits. Uh, anything uh, you want to mention before we uh, go into this? Beyond, we'll cover uh, Utica score in the next show. Uh, we didn't yep, forget Utica it. It was on the scoreboard uh, as a uh, game without a score, as you know. Uh, so we'll uh, see you guys later in the week, unless you got something else to add. Nope, just, uh, you know, we're getting into, the, once again, even more games this weekend, some more championship games, and it's great to see the Empire 8 uh, finally get back out there, and we'll look forward to recapping the uh, Saxons and Pioneers at the, the beginning of the next in the huddle, which I understand, Frank, has some semi-historical significance here, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that on Thursday or Friday, whenever that comes around. It's kind of an interesting get, little statistic. Get it me, you have to get involved. Guinness may have to get involved. We're not talking about the dark beer. We'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see you guys later in the week. All right.